Well, we are continuing in our series through John's Gospel. It is just an outstanding gospel for us to be studying. And if you would turn to John chapter 2. Last time we were in this gospel two weeks ago, we began in the wedding at Cana. And now if you would look at verse 12 with me and read along. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Father, you have just spoken to us through your word. These are your words. This is your voice speaking to your church this morning. Lord, may they all hear. May all of us hear you speak. Lord, may we be confronted and encouraged by your words. And Lord, may our lives as believers in you be different because we've heard you speak. Lord, I pray for your church this morning that they would personally, individually encounter the living God, through the living word. And Lord, please help me to bless your people this morning. Help me, Father, to speak what you are saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the wedding is over. Jesus, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples decide to take a few days rest in Capernaum, which is about 20 miles away, about a day's walk from Cana. So they go down there and they stay for a few days. And then they head down to Jerusalem, which is a trip of about 100 miles. You can, there's two ways to go. One way is to go through Samaria. Another way is to go around Samaria. And typically that's what the Jews do. They go around Samaria because the Jews have nothing to do with the Samaritans. 
And they're making a trip to Jerusalem specifically, as John writes in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 1,400 years earlier, the nation of Israel sits enslaved to Egypt. That is their plight. But God, in his mercy and in his plan of redemption, sends a deliverer named Moses who mediates this plight to the Pharaoh of Egypt. And he appeals to him, let the Israelites go. Let us go that we may go and worship our God in the desert. Pharaoh, of course, says no. And he hardens his heart. And God sends plague after plague after plague. And at one point, Pharaoh relents and then hardens his heart. And God sends more plagues. But finally, Pharaoh gets weary and he relents. And he says, okay. And just as they're about to go, one last time, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And so God, in his wisdom... And in his righteousness and in his holiness, he says one more judgment. Pharaoh has hardened his heart because the idea of losing all these Israelites, 600,000 of them who serve as slaves, who fuel the economy of Egypt, it's going to ruin the country. And he hardens his heart and he says no. And so God sends the final plague. And he instructs the Israelites to slaughter a lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and paint it on the doorposts of their home. And on that night, the angel of God, the angel of death, finds its way through all of Egypt, putting to death the firstborn in every home, except for the homes of those who painted the sacrificial lamb, the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And it is those homes that the angel of death passed over. And it is that, it is that event that the Israelites year in and year out commemorate. That blood was shed. A sacrifice was made. And God's people were delivered. What a wonderful picture of the gospel 1,400 years prior. And so Jesus is heading down to Jerusalem for this celebration. And it is his first trip to Jerusalem as he enters ministry. So his, his first real public ministry begins in Jerusalem. What happened at the, the wedding at Cana was not as public as you might think. It was in a small town. It was among family members and friends. But he heads down to Jerusalem. Now imagine what it would be like traveling to Jerusalem. This sacred test uh, celebration, the sacred festival of Passover was in a sense a requirement for the Jews to all go to the one place, to the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so Jews and believers, proselytes from all over that Roman world, that ancient world would make their way to Jerusalem. Imagine what it'd be like 
traveling on the road. Thousands are on the road. They would, during the season prior to Passover, they would begin to repair the road specifically for the festivals so that people could make their way to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem would get all spruced up. In many ways, it was like Christmas. It was like Christmas and New Year's all rolled into one. And these Jews are making their way there to celebrate the deliverance of Israel. And it's teeming with people. And Jerusalem doesn't just double in size. It doesn't just triple in size. It literally quadruples in size. And it is into this crowd, into this experience that Jesus and his disciples come. Now, this Passover in John is one of three mentioned in John's gospel. So there's there's this Passover. You'll see another one uh, a a few chapters later. And then the final in, in John 12, 12, Jesus makes his final trip to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it is this first Passover that he attends that really his ministry begins. And he navigates through these crushing crowds and he makes his way to the temple. Now this temple is the second temple that was built in Jerusalem. The first temple was built by Solomon, David's son. It was a temple that was so magnificent and so glorious that royalty from around the world would come to view this temple and to encounter the God of Israel in this temple. But the Babylonians come in 588 BC and they destroy Solomon's temple. And they take captive and they exile into exile the the Israelite people. But then years later in 538 BC, Cyrus the Great gives approval. And you read about Nehemiah and Ezra returning to Jerusalem and building, rebuilding the temple. And it is this temple, this rebuilt temple. But it was, it was a shell of the former temple of Solomon's. And so in 20 BC, Herod, to keep in Herod the Great, who wants to, in a sense, keep the favor of the Jews as he rules, begins to rebuild some of the temple. And it's been 46 years since that process began. And that is when Jesus enters into this temple, being renovated, being remodeled. And that's what we see recorded here in John's gospel. So Jesus enters and he enters into what is known as the court of the Gentiles. The court, this was the outermost court of the temple. It is the court where Gentiles, those who were not born Jewish, those who may became proselyte believers, those, they were allowed to worship God in the outer court. So they weren't, they weren't on the same level as the Jews, And it is into this outer court that Jesus enters. And what happens next is stunning. Now imagine being one of Jesus' disciples at this moment. I mean, here, you've just spent weeks hanging out with him. You spent the night with him one night. You go to a wedding. 
You've seen some pretty interesting things at the wedding. You're hanging out, having a great time with him. You, you went to Capernaum, which is a seaside. It's a fishing village. So it's a seaside resort. They're kind of hanging out at the beach together. And then they're on a, at least probably a, a one-week trip along the road to Jerusalem. And all they know of this Jesus is that he's just this kind and quiet guy. We're, And all of a sudden, what happens to gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Who who is this man in his common... Let Let me read that again to you. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. This is an area where worship is to take place. Do you understand that? This is, this is the court of the Gentiles. And although it's the Gentiles, it's still the place where they're to meet God. And making a whip of cords. He drove them out of the temple. With the sheep and the oxen. You drive sheep. You drive oxen. Can you imagine swinging that whip? This is not Jesus, meek and mild. And he poured out the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, I, I'm just amazed. I mean, as a guy, you're, you're thinking, oh, you're not going to let somebody do this to you. You're going to stand up for yourself. And yet these people just take it. Jesus is pulling over tables. He's scattering coins. He's driving sheep and cattle. And he's sending them all out. And he's driving the money changers. He's driving the sellers, the merchants that are there. Now, it's kind of him. Think of this. There were pigeons being sold as well. He said, and those who sold the pigeons, he said, take these things away. Now, the the pigeons were for... The pigeons were for the poor. Because they couldn't afford to purchase the sacrificial animals like cattle and oxen and sheep. And so, kindly, in this moment, Jesus Jesus very graciously tells the the people who are selling pigeons, take them away. He doesn't open their cages. He doesn't ruin their livelihood at that moment. He's very very kind. This, This is... This is an interesting moment. Now, in his commentary, Kent Hughes uses a portion of C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader to actually explain this passage. Lucy and Edmund have just landed on shore, and they see this beautiful grass field in front of them. And here is what Lewis writes. And of course, as it always does in a perfectly flat place without trees... It looked as if the sky came down to meet the grass in front of them. But as they went on, they got the strangest impression that here, at the last, the sky really did come down and join the earth. 
But between them and the foot of the sky, there was something so white on the green grass that even with their eagle eyes, they could hardly look at it. They came on and saw that it was a lamb. Come and have breakfast, said the lamb in its sweet, milky voice. Then they noticed for the first time that there was a fire lit on the grass and fish roasting on it. They sat down and ate the fish, hungry now for the first time in many days. And it was the most delicious food they had ever tasted. Please, lamb, said Lucy, is this the way to Aslan's country? Not for you, said the lamb. For you, the door into Aslan's country is from your own world. What, said Edmund, is there a way into Aslan's country from our world too? There is a way into my country from all the world, said the lamb. But as he spoke, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold, and his size changed, and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. And Lewis, in this verse, is illustrating a great truth of our Christian faith. The lamb is a lion. The lamb is the lion of Judah. In chapter 1, Jesus twice records John the Baptist speaking of Jesus saying, Behold the Lamb of God. And in Jerusalem, this is, because that's what, that's what drew the disciples to Jesus. And now in Jerusalem, they're seeing the Lamb of God become the Lion of Judah. This Lamb of God cannot tolerate what is happening in his Father's house. And I believe what our passage is teaching us this morning is this, to worship God rightly, we must worship him in purity, but that is possible in Christ. To worship God rightly, we must worship him in purity, but that is possible in Christ. And two points this morning from our passage, what the cleansing of the old temple means and what the establishment of the new temple means. Means Because in this passage, we see this transition, this transformation from the old temple to a new temple. What the cleansing of the old temple means. This cleansing of the temple is the first cleansing by Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. There are actually two cleansing of the temple in Jesus's ministry. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in their gospels, when they talk about Jesus cleansing the temple, they're actually speaking about the second cleansing. Because they're talking about this happening at the end of Jesus' ministry, at the Passion Week. Now, John doesn't record that. John records the first cleansing. In the first cleansing, when Jesus cleanses the temple, there is these guys, the, the money changers and the merchant selling, they, they, respond, they, they respond by doing nothing. And the temple authorities respond by asking a question. At the end of Jesus' ministry, you read in the other Gospels, when Jesus cleanses the temple, they've had enough of him by that point. It's three years into his ministry. They've had enough. And so rather than responding, they plot to kill him at the end of the other Gospels. So we're looking at 
the first cleansing that is taking place and is prophesied actually by Malachi in chapter 3. Malachi says this, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring an offering in righteousness to the Lord. He comes to his temple in Malachi, and he refines the temple. And that is what Malachi is prophesying here. Skip Ryan in his commentary, and John says this, Jesus' purpose in purifying the temple is to purify the worship there. The Lord is calling for our purity in worship, he writes. Now many worshipers coming to Jerusalem for the Passover came from long distances. And it would be very difficult for them, and if not impossible, for them to be carrying sheep and oxen and lamb and, and cattle to, to be sacrificed at the temple. And so it was actually an appropriate matter of convenience that the, the sellers, the merchants of these sacrifices were, out, were in, at Jerusalem and the money changers were there because, because when people would come from all these different countries, they would be bringing their own currency. And the only acceptable currency as an offering in the temple was the Jewish shekel. And so that's why the money changers were there. Like when you would go to an airport as you travel to a foreign country and you change money over, that would be acceptable in that country. And so that's what's happening here. But early on, these money changers and these merchants would be situated in a valley outside of Jerusalem, the Valley of Kidron. And that's where they would sell. But but over time, this creeping closer and closer to the temple came in and the temple authorities recognized they could actually make money by charging the merchants to be in the temple. And so that's why these men are in the temple selling and see, Jesus' opposition isn't about the selling of the sacrifices or the changing of the money. Look at, look at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 14, in the temple. In the temple. That's what was offensive to Jesus. It was not what they were selling. It was where they were selling. It was in the court of the Gentiles. It was preventing a group of people from worshiping God. D.A. Carson says in his commentary, Jesus's complaint is not that they are guilty of sharp business practices and should therefore reform their ethical life, but they, that they should not be in the temple area at all. How dare you turn my father's house into a market, he exclaims. Instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. 
Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. Jesus' cleansing of the temple testifies to his concern for pure worship, a right relationship with God at the place supremely designated to serve as the focal point of the relationship between God and man. Brothers and sisters, we were created by God to be worshipers of God. And anything that interferes with this sacred duty is offensive to him. And as, worship, as being created by worshipers, there's never a moment where we are not in a place to be worshiping God. And, and what you're going to learn in this, in this point is that this temple, this old temple, this one place where people came to worship, that, that, that place is being now obliterated. It is obsolete. See, the Sunday morning here is a wonderful time and a necessary time of corporate worship. But this is not the temple. This is not the place where you come to worship. Worship is a lifestyle. It is to happen daily, not weekly. All that was happening here in this temple during this sacred Passover was offensive to God. Gentile worshipers lost their place of worship. And more importantly, God himself became an afterthought in the temple. Because these merchants, their view of God was clouded by their desire for wealth. The cleansing of the old temple meant this. The Gospel Transformation Bible describes it so well. It says, Jesus' cleansing of the temple was much more than an act of moral outrage and judgment. It was a sign of end-time fulfillment. The temple was never given as an end in itself. Like the tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple was essential, but ultimately temporary. For its abuses exposed just how broken God's worship and God's worshipers had become through sin. That is the story of the old temple. And I grew up in a Jewish home. I understand the idea of temple. And my idea, see, I understand where, where there are a lot of things that draw you to the temple. And as a kid growing up, we would be required to go to the temple on Saturday for Sabbath services. And the only thing that drew me there was the spread of food they had after the service. And so I would get there make sure dad and mom saw me, and then find my way to the bathroom where the other guys my age were hanging out. And we would wait out all of the services until the food was put out. And if I was hungry, I'd go to the second service. <laughs> that temple, that temple 
was temporary. This temple here. And later on, the disciples in verse 17, they understand why Jesus is so impassioned. They understand why zeal for his house has consumed him. Now, this is, a, this is a, both a statement of now and a statement of the future. He's quoting, John is quoting David from Psalm 69, 6, where, where, where David is, is being persecuted and being reproached for his love and his support of God's temple. So David, David understands. And so, so Jesus is, is in the same way consumed with the same passion that David had for the temple. And his disciples understand that. But the prophetic part of this in verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. It's actually not exactly quoted because in, in, in Psalm 69, it's zeal for your house has consumed me. John is writing this as a prophetic zeal for your house will consume me. That consummation, that consuming is Jesus's death. That zeal for the house of God will end in the death of Christ. That it will cost him everything. And this old temple, the, the, what this old temple means is that it is obsolete. Because Jesus goes on to establish a new temple. Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I find that just so bizarre. He's turned over tables. He's driven out the, not just the oxen and the cattle. He's driven out the people. And the temple authorities, they don't call the Roman authorities. It, it wasn't that bad that it created a riot. And the, and the Romans, would they had guards in the temple. And so they could have very well arrested Jesus for creating a riot. And they didn't. And the temple authorities come to him and they don't say, you know, why are you doing this? They say, what authority? There was something there that they caught. And they're saying, what authority do you have? What sign do you show us for doing these things? And, and they're they're wondering what is, what is going on. His, and Jesus' words are, they're very ambiguous. He says, destroy this temple. What is this? Is this temple the building? Or is this temple his body? It's an ambiguous comment, but he says, destroy this temple. And I will raise it up in three days. And it isn't until later, and this is common when you read throughout John, that, that Jesus will make a statement, and then John writes, it isn't until later that the disciples understood what he was saying. And that's, and that's just typical. The, the disciples are, they're, they're, understand, I mean, they just, they've just been with Jesus about a week and a half, and they don't quite get him. You know, they're, they're just not quite understanding this guy. He, he changes water to wine. He runs around in the temple screaming like a madman. I mean, they're just not quite getting this guy. And it's going to take some time. It's going to take three years. And it isn't even until after he is resurrected do they begin to understand all of the prophetic things said about him. They're, they're just wondering, what, what is this guy all about? 
But what he is about is this. At this very moment, when he makes this statement, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, he is saying the old system of animal sacrifice of the temple is obsolete. It's done. It's over. What the establishment of the new temple is this. Jesus is promising something better. The old temple was a place where you had to bring animals and you had to sacrifice them and there had to be blood shed every day for the remission of sins. That is the old temple. That was what the Jewish world was like. If you wanted to be forgiven of your sins, you had to sacrifice animals. And if you wanted to come near God, you could not. There was a curtain that separated men from the holiest places. And only one specific Levitical priest could go in to the Holy of Holies. Everybody else saw God from a distance. And Jesus, at this moment, is obliterating that. He's changing everything. The old system of animal sacrifice is obsolete. And the reason for this is simple. And here's what this John is trying to convey to us. A perfect sacrifice, once for all, will be offered and accepted by God. The death and resurrection of Jesus will institute a new temple where there'll never be the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep and the sound of money changers again. It will be over. You want a sign, Jesus asks? They, they probably heard about the water turning to wine. They, they want something miraculous. They, they want to see something cool. And Jesus gives them a cryptic statement. But he does give them a sign. He says, you want a sign? You want something that authenticates why I'm doing this? What I'm doing? Watch me rise from the dead. That's the sign. That's the sign. In three days, this temple, this new temple, that temple, that's done. Here's a new temple. And you want to see a sign that proves I'm the new temple? Watch me rise from the dead. And then it says, his disciples understood this later. (laughs) They got it later. We know it now. The ancient sacrificial system located in Jerusalem no longer was adequate to to us, to mankind, for the remission of sin. It It didn't work. But the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was the perfect eternal sacrifice that atoned for sin. And Jesus is now the new temple. Do you get that? He's now the new temple. It's the place where men and women go to worship. No longer is there needed a physical temple where we go to worship. He has come to us. The word has become flesh, as John writes in chapter 1. The word has become flesh and dwelt among us. No longer are there trips to Jerusalem. 
No longer is there a physical temple. Jesus is the temple. He's the place where the ultimate sacrifice took place, where men and women are now able to meet with God face to face. There's no curtain. When that curtain was torn from top to bottom at the moment of Jesus dying, that temple was once and for all obsolete. Done. And John is recording this first for the the people of his day, but for us as well. They see Jesus now. We see Jesus now face to face, reconciled through his shed blood, him being the perfect and permanent only eternal sacrifice for us. Never again do we have to make a sacrifice. Never again does blood have to be shed. Never again. Because he is risen from the dead. I love what John writes later in Revelation. He says, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. Get that? Revelation 21, 22. I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. The Lamb and the Lion. What is our application? The cleansing of the old temple means this. It's obsolete. The establishment of the new temple means we can meet with God face to face. Now, if like the disciples, we have come to faith in Christ and we believe in his name, it means that the temple has changed the way we're to worship. The old temple graphically reveals the depravity of mankind. The the whole idea of the money changers, John is painting this picture of how depraved humanity is, that they've turned the house of God into a place of profit, personal profit, personal gain, that the idolatry of money has replaced the worship of God. The old temple graphically reveals the depravity of mankind, but but the new temple graphically reveals the love of God towards mankind. That he would come to earth. That the word would become flesh. That he would be the lamb of God who would be slaughtered for our sins. That he would graphically die on a cross. A a horrible, horrific death. That we might come face to face with God when we put our faith in the sacrificial lamb of God. Two points for application here. One is this. Because we are called to be worshipers of God. But worshipers who worship in purity. Old temple habits. Do you have old temple habits? The old temple reveals the depravity of man. Mankind's corrupt nature 
corrupted worship. You get that? Mankind's corrupt nature corrupted worship. The worship of God in the temple was corrupted. The worship of God in the temple was no longer worship. It had been corrupted by their love of money. It had been corrupted by their desire for wealth. It had been corrupted by their idolatry of themselves above God. But we've been given a new nature, one that allows us to worship God in the righteousness of Christ. But corruption still, to this day, can creep in to our worship, to our lives. We're not above still being corrupted today. Let me give you a few ideas. A corrupt attitude towards worship. I hope worship is better this week. <laughs> there are too many songs. The music is too loud. The music is not loud enough. Why do we have to sing that song? That's just a corrupt attitude towards worship. We can have a distracted heart in worship. What time does the game start? What should we do for lunch? Lunch? I am so hungry now. I'm so physically tired. I don't feel well. My life is a mess. Our minds are everywhere but here. We could have not just a corrupt attitude or distracted heart to, with old temple habits, but we could have an impure lifestyle. What am I doing that I don't want others to see? Are there any defiling activities that I participate in? What's hidden? You can hide it, but God sees it. And then last, an idolatrous heart. What do I think about most during worship? What do I really love in life? Old temple habits. We can, we can import them into our worship. Old temple habits can, can be surrounding us, within us, in the midst of raising hands and singing songs. But we've been given a new nature. We don't have to worship like that. Because we also, not only are there old temple habits, but we've been given new temple promises. See, this new temple is not a temple of a building. It's a temple of a man who died on a cross that we might be given a new nature that we can follow after Christ. The new temple reveals the love of God for mankind. How God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The new temple promises is we've been given a new life. There is no physical act I need to do to ever earn God's approval again. I don't have to bring cattle to the temple. I don't have to bring pigeons. I don't have to change money and give offerings. Those things don't, and don't bring me into the presence of God. Christ brings me into the presence of God. The love of God has changed me in Christ. So now I can meet with God face to face. A new temple promise is a new joy. I'm free to worship God because he forgives all my sin. Past, present, and future. 
all my sin. Whatever sins you were struggling with when you came in here today, when you bring them to the cross, they are forgiven. They are forgotten. He remembers our sins no more. You are a new creation. Sin no longer, as Paul writes in Romans 6, sin no longer has dominion over you. You are not a slave to sin, Paul writes. You are a slave to righteousness. You are God's. You can have a new joy, which when you have a new joy, it expresses itself in worship. And then finally, you have a new hope. No matter what occurs in our lives, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. This new temple that Jesus institutes here, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Therefore, he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered he had said this. And here was their response. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Listen, when we, when we hear this, when we believe this, we, our, our faith grows in God. Our hope grows in God. Our joy grows in God. We have this new life in God. And that life is because... This new temple has come. In C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy, Edmund, and Peter have just died in a train wreck. And they find themselves standing before Aslan as he proclaims this. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended this morning. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read and which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's where we're going. And this day, today, And every day until this day when we come into this new story where every chapter is better than the one before, until that day, there is a day coming when we will worship in God's presence. But until that day, this day, and every day till then is a preparation day for that day. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you that we no longer have to do physical acts to earn time in your presence. You simply say to pray and we can come into your presence before the throne of grace. All because Jesus has done it for us. Lord, I pray that for those who are struggling with old temple habits, you would, in your kindness, bring deliverance to them. Father, I pray for those who desire to worship 
in purity, that, that you would help them to overcome the very sins that prevent them from doing so. And may they this morning feel your love and your forgiveness and your deliverance because you have already done it in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.